Zinfandel, The Mystic's Path of Self-Knowledge, by Dominic Vallée, narrated by Graham Dunlop, edited by Darren Grimes. Part 1. Zinfandel Revealed. Chapter 1. Introduction. Tenderly dedicated to my mother, Jocelyne. Heartfelt thanks, Audrey Fournier, Julie Gazil, Raymond Delosière, David Cloutier, and Nicole Lafontaine, for your presence, your multiple forms of support, and your love. As well as to Nadège Agostini, Marie-Pierre Beaulieu, Dan Reed, and Francis Leduc, for your invaluable help and generous advice. Montreal, September 8th, 2022, post-pandemic. The dust raised seems to defy gravity. The cards are no longer on the table, and the anchors cling only to a muddy void, drift, dizziness, confusion. A self, as miniature as it is eternal, one of the billion centers of the universe, types these lines, tap, tap, tap. For this I typing these lines, it is quite possibly its first time to know exactly what it is called to do and why. In truth, this I is now writing because at last it can. Because it has always felt a calling to write about being inhabited by the necessary faith in its own words. A faith that inhabits it now. The blinding dust persists in remaining motionless, the table and the cards becoming ghosts and the anchor itself now made of mud. Swirls, upheavals, panic. The eye is embodied through a deep inspiration, then settles in a slow, silent expiration. I is now Dominic Valley under the late summer sun and it is from his window of consciousness that he, or rather, that I am writing these words to you. The dust becomes concrete, then prison, then cell, the table and the cards evaporating in a mischievous laughter, and the sandy anchor is dissipated to the currents of the sea. Paralysis, alienation, chaos. After more or less half a lifetime of experimentation, Many more failures than successes, isolation and enlightenment, analysis and daydreams, but above all of expansion, the mastery and harmony required to write this book are now, so it seems, part of who I am. And the freedom, too, a freedom as much sought after as it is necessary. The darkened cell, the shapeless fog, the sea winds, persistent guides, despair, abandonment. Abandonment. It is covered in scars that I begin this work, with stigmata resulting from the demands of the roles I have played in what has so far been the melodrama of my life. Blindly complying to the demands of the script, I played the pariah, the mad alchemist, the reckless and inconsiderate youngster, the masochist, the tortured artist, the one who knows, the flouted lover. Above all, I played the slave betrayed by life itself, frightened, burdened by the weighty chains of depression. A cell, or maybe mine, nothing, 
Only darkness, the real one. My eyes blink for no reason. The body stubbornly alive, sanguine. Stillness, calm, abandonment. I'm not here to tell you about my travels. I've never even been in a plane. I'm not writing from a monastery or hermitage. I do not belong to any tradition. My walls show no diploma, no plaque. I've accomplished no feat except that of not having followed any path. The ensuing chapters are not uttered by any master, whether in flesh or ascended. But it is inconsequential. If this book doesn't tell of my journey, it will rather encourage you, I hope, to embark on your own path towards the top of yourself. A path on which you are the only authority. It is as an ordinary person, as a self-taught mystic, that I dedicate myself to sharing clues and tools that may be useful in elucidating the greatest and most fascinating enigma that you will ever encounter. Yourself. I have nothing to teach you. Rather, simple words that only you have the power to transform into teachings. Dark my room, at my feet the darkened window. The sheets on my skin, renewed by every moment. The air without time, mystery, lightness, awakening. Whether voluntarily or by obligation, the current global atmosphere pushes us towards self-discovery and reinvention. The time for the great deconstruction has come. Well, frankly, this time has always been more or less present. I said that only for dramatic effect, but it does seem that the circumstances are currently favorable to the undertaking of a certain connection to oneself. For many, recent events and their repercussions have had the effect of an alarm clock without a snooze button, screaming for urgency. But for what urgency? Something is wrong. The world and my dreams are collapsing around me. I don't know what to do or even who to be. Is it urgent to cling to something tangible and stable? To be reassured? I have to be honest. You won't find that comfort in this book. However, any discomfort is much easier to tolerate when a meaning can be attributed to it. And this meaning is immediately accessible to anyone who is prepared to devote himself entirely to the exploration of his person which this book is solely about. A sword of light, a solar torrent, my fingers, the alpha and omega, the glittering dust, transcendence, infinity, illumination. Without the experience of suffering and discomfort, I would not be able to suggest these teachings. Running away from the pain was of course never enough to keep it from coming back to torture me. I had no choice but to observe its nature and its workings, to understand its influence on me, not to ultimately annihilate it, but rather to a certain extent to master it. Without apathy and confusion as guides, I would not understand the principles of right action as well. Also, the very existence of this book demonstrates my victory over procrastination and uncertainty. Lastly, without fear and doubt, I would miss half of the equation allowing me to transmit their functioning their use. Don't get me wrong, I am neither special nor exceptional. I simply had the luck or the good fortune to suffer enough. This suffering pushed me to develop an obsession for the understanding of life, as well as a sometimes brutal honesty with myself. Qualities both required to open up to what true freedom of being is. This work is, I observe now, at the essence of the mystical path, 
It opens our consciousness to much more than a simple notion of psychological comfort. Developing the ability to observe and mastering the active energies constituting our existence is the key to emancipating oneself from the futile dynamics of pleasure-pain, success-failure, complacency-violence. Freed from the incoherent and limiting structures of these concepts, the deep meaning of our lives is revealed to us, a meaning that will then naturally animate us. The dust, it's floating in the radiating access, a bed unmade in air and time. I move free without fear, free without confidence, terrestrial, honest, incarnation. While all this may sound austere, it's also important to note how magical life becomes as you become actively integrated into what I would crudely call the natural flow. It is with some apprehension that I approach the subject of this magic because our tendency to escape through pleasure and entertainment also extends to so-called supernatural experiences. But although they generate their share of pitfalls, it is important to take these experiences into account to expand our awareness of what we cannot see or touch. Much of the sense of deep meaning in our lives depends on our ability to perceive the intertwining and interdependence of the concrete and the subtle. Awakened to the intangible, what may seem mundane to most will become exceptional for the adept. For them, daily events take on a meaning previously ignored that influenced his decisions and actions. If there was one such primary mission of the mystic, it would be to perceive and embody the miracle of the ordinary. Everything is dust, light, maps, table, and anchor. The sea winds move. Equinimous. I'm attentive. Presence. Magic. Participation. For many, one of the most difficult notions to integrate is undoubtedly that of reconciling the spirits of devotion to that of playfulness. Without the rigor of the former, game is mere entertainment, and without the lightness of the latter, all discipline becomes violence. The spirit of playfulness is a powerful engine that allows creativity to express itself freely, wonder to challenge us and curiosity to motivate us. It grants us the innocence inherent to an open mind, necessary to see the magic that operates within our lives. Just as it can be difficult to stop a good movie in the middle without yearning to know the end, our daily life can be a true saga, making each experience a new chapter in the plot. No matter what form these experiences take, whether physical, mental, or spiritual in nature, whether they take place in our relationships, our work, or our thoughts, they all contribute to the exciting story that is our existence. The spirit of playfulness has the power to place us at the center of this story, as the main character, of course, but also as spectator, commentator, and observer. Through the reflections suggested in this work, I hope to entice your motivation to fully play this miraculous game which is your existence. This mystical game which consists in distinguishing the false from the true and more specifically in breaking the spell of beliefs and to, essentially, feel the meaning of the verb to know. But then, what exactly is there to know? Come on, be serious. You certainly don't expect me to reveal the punch of the book. And who knows, maybe only you have the answer to this question. I will just say this. The aforementioned punch is more likely to be a beginning than an end. And it's usually after its apparition that the story truly begins. Enough mysteries. 
The words composing this book have reached your eyes. It is now up to you to render them saving by trying. If your heart dictates you so, to graft them to your own words, it is up to you to deeply inhabit your reality, and this book is only my humble effort to encourage you to do so. And this by yourself and for yourself in full resonance with your deepest nature. Honestly, I don't know what our world needs, but I wrote that sentence with aplomb and assurance, not in the spirit of defeat or resignation. I will never pretend to know, except for one detail. I believe that one of the current goals of humanity's quest, our own quest, is to see a growing number of humans living with integrity. I don't know what a world where the awakened state would be the norm would look like, but one thing is certain. It would be more true and more coherent with the essence and the flow of truth. It would be bigger, less artificial, infinitely more magical, and would undoubtedly embody the very image of universal harmony. So here we are today, Zinfindel and me, inhabited by the hope of moving you, of shocking you, of comforting you, of leaving you to yourself as well as of supporting you, but above all, of illuminating your gaze to whom you truly are, you, a divine point of consciousness, as miniature as it is eternal. Chapter 2 Behind the Door, A Mirror it's of course common for artists and other creators to generate what they want to exist that doesn't already exist. So my hope is to come up with a one-of-a-kind book that I want to stand out for its tone, delivery of content, and originality. My reasons for writing it, on the other hand, are quite banal. They can be summed up in two needs, that of writing it and that of it being accessible to all. The first need is obviously personal. The second, meanwhile, is one I perceive from the exterior. Let me explain. Synthesis Not being particularly interested in motorcycles or women half my age, or in cliches for that matter, I needed something more substantial to channel the type of energy emerging during what seemed like a midlife crisis. Faced with the rise of the same transmutative energy... Artist Alan Moore decided for himself upon reaching his 40s to make his life more interesting by calling himself a magician, the Aleister Crowley kind rather than Harry Potter or Houdini. Note, British artist best known for the creation of The Watchmen and V for Vendetta comics, both brought to the big screen in the early 2000s. Already, this type of avenue seemed more inspiring to me, but although I appreciate the term magician, I needed something less specific, more fluid and mutable, maybe a little less flashy, too. That's when the term mystical rang in my mind, once, then twice, then repeatedly over the months, finally prompting me to investigate its definition. I was indeed surprised to find that this term, even according to its conventional definition, described very well both my personality, my interests, and my motivations. Indeed, my daily life being characterized by a search for union with the divine, I surprisingly saw myself in the definition of the term by the dictionary. So unlike Moore, who became a magician over time, I rather observed what I had unknowingly become. I had more or less always had a mystical streak. Less exciting than the idea of reinventing myself, this realization gave me a certain strength, a certainty that I've always lacked. For the first time ever, I saw a figure taking shape in the mirror which had never displayed more than a sort of potential haziness. 
metamorphosis and transmutation being an integral part of the mystical path, this reflection will certainly always remain in motion, but a kind of central knot, a luminous heart, had then taken shape. I was, and still am, a mystic. For this second half of my life, therefore, I wasn't going to reinvent myself. Rather, at the risk of sounding grandiose, I was going to be truly born. I was finally ready to inhabit my life, but to be and act in real coherence with this heart of light in my center. I first had to do a kind of work of synthesis, make a list of pitfalls and successes of the rules of my own personality, of my rare certainties, of the questions most fertile in Gnosis, of the exercises and practices to which I have devoted myself, etc. Briefly, make an inventory of the tools at my disposal, determine their usefulness and evaluate their effectiveness. Even more simply, to distinguish for and by myself the false from the true. Although it would surely be a demanding job, I found myself energized at the thought of generating such a list and filled with a seemingly unusual assurance for someone going through this so-called midlife crisis. I did not feel the doubt and confusion usually attributed to this period of life. The term crisis, in my case at least, does not apply to it. Conversely, I found myself strong with the overall portrait of my person, of my filters and biases, of my strengths and shortcomings, of my psychology. But above all else, at ease with external landmarks moving or disappearing with changing minds. My true personal landmarks, I observe now, transcend the limits of logic and circumstance. Material realities are far more unstable than my metaphysical foundations. They anchor me, in reality, in a much more reliable way than could money, career, status, beliefs, or anything related to a society which itself seems to be adrift. And it is precisely following this observation that I felt important for our world, given its state as well as that of its inhabitants, to write these pages. How am I not only adapting to these enormous planetary changes, but to even remain optimistic when most people seem to consider that everything is falling apart? I had to find those answers within myself and share them. I feel fortunate and gratified by my situation. It is my duty to allow people, if they feel so inclined, to take advantage of my experiences and discoveries. And so in this very book, I make them available to everyone. The Mystic's Radical Autonomy Nothing in this world is ever destroyed that wasn't destined to be. The same goes for our personal circumstances, whether they are relational, financial, or physical. It just happens that we are incarnated at this moment, witnessing events, waiting in the ocean of information of this particular time-space. Our difficulty in going through periods perceived as difficult is matched only by the ignorance of our deep nature. In other words, the ease with which we adapt to circumstances is a reflection of the knowledge we have of ourselves. Frankly, I felt almost cruel writing the previous statement. Not only do our systems not encourage the introspection necessary to discover oneself in depth, but moreover, the intricacies of self-knowledge are of such singularity that it producing a system homogeneous enough to be applied to the masses would basically be impossible. Finally, it is likely that some influential people take advantage of our internal disconnection and therefore would try to maintain it. This ignorance of oneself as well as the resulting behaviors are due only in tiny part to people's stupidity or malfeasance. To a certain extent, therefore, one cannot blame humanity for its lack of self-awareness. An ideal education system, from my point of view, of course, 
would emphasize the autonomy of individuals. They would learn to think, to create by themselves. They would even learn to learn, and this according to the specificities of their person. From an early age, we would experience experimenting on ourselves and in reality, aware of what resonates or not within ourselves. Very soon, I believe that we would see a stronger, wiser version of humanity taking shape, composed of sovereign individuals. In other words, more and more people would think and act for themselves, using a discernment that would have developed from childhood, rather than placing the moral responsibility for their actions in the hands of an institution or other. I agree, however, that these ideas are far from new. If they have not been integrated into our systems, it may be because adapting them on a large scale would require a radical change of our societal values. In fact, perhaps an upheaval would be required that would challenge the very prevalence of materialism. To tell the truth, I am not sure such a change is feasible in the short or medium term. This is, among other things, why I believe it is preferable to emphasize the expansion of our personal field of consciousness rather than forcing the modification of our systems. However, whether endemic or corrigible, the shortcomings of our societies and institutions create a need for this type of book. Many find themselves powerless in the face of this chaotic atmosphere and the post-pandemic tension because our dreams and landmarks are evaporating, because our relationship to others and to ourselves is in full mutation. Some, mostly seekers and adepts, have never needed global disasters to feel all this upheaval within them. No matter if this drifting feeling is recent or habitual, one can anchor to a deeper part of oneself to take a clearer and broader view of personal circumstances. However, a kind of radical autonomy and a DIY, do-it-yourself, attitude are often required to achieve this. Through practical, psychological, and metaphysical explorations, we will try to reveal for ourselves, with the help of this book, the most fundamental truths upon which we can rely as a basis for our own beliefs and actions. Maybe more than ever, we are witnessing the limits of our systems. Although their creation can't be considered a mistake, depending on them represents a serious obstacle for an individual's sovereignty, and even for his maturity. As children, most of us relied on our parents to provide education, sustenance, and protection. As adults, we generally make the mistake of shifting these expectations onto institutions of all kinds, thereby blaming them when they fail to provide for us. Moreover, our most fundamental need cannot be met by a third entity. The need to deeply feel our life as meaningful is a primary and primordial need, and to meet it is a task that only falls to the individual. I'm not yet certain whether this meaning must be sought and discovered or rather created voluntarily, but certainly it is by oneself and only by oneself that it is possible to see it manifested. It is therefore impossible for me to instill within you anything truly adapted to your situation. Actually, maybe impossibility explains why so little material having the path of autonomy as main subject has ever been produced. How can one describe a way without a way? How do I point to a path that doesn't appear on any map? Such a goal seems unattainable to me, and that's fine. The way for which one can indicate the location can neither be true nor yours. My role is limited to stimulating your personal research, because it is through experience that you will find your way. Such is the nature of the great game, discovery through direct experience. To sum up, 
The second need mentioned in this chapter's introduction is for the existence of a text evoking the flavor of a truly embodied life. In other words, I feel a void that needs to be filled in spiritual and philosophical writings, for few are those who constantly bring the reader back to himself, going so far as to invite him to consider his own beliefs with a healthy skepticism. By advocating for a more tangible, more practical and experiential approach than the billions of poems, teachings and gospels already written, Zinfindel aims to connect the reader to that luminous spot that precedes thoughts, traditions, philosophies, and ideologies. Autonomous, the reader will thus be able to inquire about the most unshakable foundations of his own reality. It's not common to come across books that offer this DIY approach to spirituality, an essentially mystical approach, and it is why I believe there is a need for this book. Faith Come to think of it, maybe a third need justifies Zinfindel's incarnation. Many are currently on this pathless path, or at least have somehow experienced it. Doubt being an integral part of it and its landmarks being visible only to the follower, one may frequently lose confidence in his own approach, just as I have so often lost it. One may believe others to be more advanced, more enlightened, and wiser, and that these others' personal or traditional ways are obviously superior. To you, follower of the lonely mystical path, I say this as you might need to hear these words. The light on your face can only belong to another. The one who will illuminate you and breathe life into your life has a seat only in your own heart, and no one else can reveal the way. I can't say if at this moment you're living in with integrity or if you're on the right path, but rest assured your approach is valid. If you're both rigorous and flexible, it will lead you much closer to your light than any other path. These are merely words, of course, and if they hold any power, it can only be fleeting. But if they fill you with a feeling of confidence, know that their roots are already clinging to the grounds of your spirit. Beyond the perceived needs that motivate the writing of this book, a deep faith drives me to create it. A faith, first of all, in my ability to write it, but also in its transmuting power over me personally. I'm also faithful that your thirst for truth will assist your reading which will contribute to the broadening of your horizons and to the coming into contact with this deep and intimate sense of meaning. Ultimately, I have faith in humanity, that it will finally manage to move to the next level of its earthly adventures. I have faith in our ability to integrate into Earth's environment by following nature's harmony in our transcending of its order and chaos. Chapter 3. Same but Different so far on my path, I've come across very few works and authors exploring esoteric, philosophical, metaphysical, and theological concepts, while proposing methods mainly based on experimentation and skepticism. Rare are those who emphasize their concrete application and the observation of their real impacts, and it is even more exceptional to meet those who aim to constantly bring the adept back to his own felt perception. Thus, we usually find writings dealing with the intangible under these categories. Philosophical, sometimes opaque and intended for those stimulated by intellectual reflection, often offering little in terms of concrete applications. From religious traditions, including those not necessarily considered by their followers as religions, for example, Buddhism and Taoism. Listing precepts, beliefs, and practices with some authority. Describing certain principles and rituals of magic, often leaving aside the deeper implications of manifestation, 
such as the notion of desire from both a spiritual and psychological point of view. This includes material about the law of attraction. Self-help, suggesting methods to become the best version of yourself, or even to blossom and fulfill oneself, while remaining rather on the surface from a psychological or a philosophical standpoint. Works of fiction qualified as initiatory, which themselves require a sufficient aptitude for introspection and empathy to be felt and integrated as lessons, rather than as merely beautiful and entertaining stories. Don't get me wrong, my intention is in no way to denigrate these types of works. All of these forms of writing are of course imbued with illuminating potential and will work at varying levels of effectiveness, depending on the personality of the individual exposed to them. In fact, many of them contributed to my call to write Zimfandel. But having said that, what would a book on a mystical path of autonomy be like if no philosophy can entirely characterize this path, which is itself highly subjective? Blindly following the precepts of a tradition or a religion implies placing one's personal agency in someone else's hands. Attempting to manifest our desires using magical principles and rituals without first understanding the paradoxical nature of action is essentially acting unconsciously. Systematically applying method of thought and principles of communication without being aware of one's own biases and contradictions preserves the individual from right action as well as from his true freedom. Being exposed to great lessons and enlightenments through imaginary or imaginal characters can only provide a facsimile experience rather than true integration. Undoubtedly, we find echoes of all these examples as reflection, traditions, magic, creativity, Direct experiences and imagination are all tools available to the adept in his quest for self-knowledge. Thus, the pages of this book are filled with serious questions, various spiritual concepts, as well as stories, metaphors, analogies, poems, etc. After all, what makes the mystical path so exciting is precisely that it has lived on a wide variety of planes of the human experience. Be that, as it may, this book stands out perhaps even more for what it is not. First of all, as it aims to develop discernment in the reader, it will offer many more questions than answers and will therefore have to be constantly questioned. You will therefore not find in the following pages the security of beliefs and dogmas. Then, its main mission being to help the reader to recognize the aroma, the texture, or the color of his own way. This book suggests a lot but promises nothing. No recipe for happiness here. This book does not only offer a single point of view, which inevitably gives rise to multiple contradictions and paradoxes. It is also not positive in its essence, and although you will sometimes find softness and comfort in it, it will also sometimes be harsh, severe, sometimes even brutal. Zinfandel is both loving and ruthless, and requires the same from the adept. Finally, these writings are incomplete. They are not truthful. They only point towards mysteries that you and you alone shall elucidate. It contains no truth that doesn't already live within yourself. So far, the outline of this book may appear to be nothing more than a hodgepodge of randomly grouped incongruous ideas, but its coherence lies not in its form. Rather, it is found in its spirit, just as the mystical path wears thousands of masks to express its unique nature. In fact, even the main subject of these pages could give the impression of changing as you read it all depending on your level of personal involvement. It may begin as a Gnostic work with a philosophical flavor or a simple compendium of esoteric principles and practices. 
But if you place your heart and intention in its consideration, you yourself will become its central character. In truth, you are the subject of this book, and that is precisely what makes it unique. Chapter 4 of Punks and Mystics In writing Zinfandel, I have taken great care to stay as far away as possible from specific ideologies. The vision offered in this book precedes political leanings, religious and cultural traditions, and all forms of activism. According to this vision, the adept seeks above all to place the focal point of his consciousness where thoughts, concepts, beliefs, and opinions have not yet taken form. However, I could not completely detach myself from one philosophy in particular, that of the DIY spirit. In order to adopt this vision and to strip it as much as he possibly could from the vehicle of the ego, one can only rely on oneself. Autodidact by nature, I was called towards this approach very early in life, both for my education and for my personal and professional undertakings. I was first inspired by the punk and grunge movements, more precisely by the related notion that approval of any form of authority should not affect personal expression and achievement. Learn by doing, evolve through experience and self-criticism, making expression, curiosity, and a sense of wonder the main elements motivating one's actions. It was out of sheer necessity that adopted this attitude towards life. Considered marginal or perhaps marginalized, even as a child, I quickly formed the belief that no system could contribute to my fulfillment, or even to my survival. Over the years and experiences, I've learned to appreciate the freedom that this way of apprehending creative and generative actions of expressing myself in this world allows me. However, only in the last few years, I've realized that this independence of thinking, acting, and actualizing not only was part of a deeply spiritual approach, but that it represents the main pillar of the mystical way. This, moreover, is what connects the wisest mystics of different traditions to each other. Before his form comes the light of the individual, and those who are enlightened by it recognize each other, even in silence. I truly wanted to produce a truly universal text, but despite my great efforts to make it easily accessible, I must admit that there is an important limit to the effectiveness of its message. Of course, nothing and no one can guarantee gnosis or enlightenment but even to receive Zinfindel's basic purpose. The ability to take charge of one's own spirituality is essential. Moreover, without this quality which distinguishes the mystic from the fanatic and the profane, it would have been impossible for me to write this book so that the message reaches the thoughts and hearts of anyone who lacks a certain autonomy. If firmly convinced that no enlightenment is possible without the intervention of a spiritual guide, or categorical that no path is valid that isn't based on some thousand-year-old tradition, the reader would receive of this book nothing more than a nauseating wind in the face. The words of this text are powerful catalysts, but without the substance of uniqueness and independence, their potential cannot be reactivated. So let's lay our cards on the table right away. Are you just looking to nod your head in confirmation or to reinforce what you already believe in? Please put Zinfindel back where you took it. Hoping for clear answers, rules to follow, a recipe for freedom? Zinfindel will disappoint you. On the other hand, if you are ready to bravely expose the workings of your egoic vehicle, Zinfindel will assist you. If you are determined to dissolve the concepts of good and evil in order to reclaim them, to reinvent them, Zinfindel will accompany you. 
Together, let us become witnesses of the first blooms and of the divine winds. Let's give ourselves an opportunity to take a look at timelessness. Together, let's lend an ear to nature's perfect distortions. Let us meet on the summit of yourself. Part 2. Noske Te Ipsum Chapter 5. Know Thyself If the maxim Know Thyself was engraved in a wall of Apollo's temple several hundred years before the present era, its meaning is to this day still debated by modern thinkers and philosophers. Indeed, knowing oneself requires, among other things, the qualification of the substance of humanity which is, one suspects, far from an easy task. Perhaps thanks to this aura of mystery, the notion of self-knowledge has crossed cultures, and in one form or another, practically all the major theological and philosophical currents. Lao Tzu, one of the main characters of Taoism, evokes it in the popular verse 33 of the Tao Te Ching. Knowing others is intelligence, knowing yourself is true wisdom. It also became one of the basic principles of many Indian philosophical traditions long before the Greeks alluded to it. According to Swami Krishnananda, self-knowledge is at the basis of the Upanishads and leads to real freedom. The Upanishads are a study of oneself. Atmanam Vidi is the great foundation of the Upanishads. Know yourself and be free. Note, one of the sets of texts forming the Vedas on which the Hindu religion is based we also find the idea evoked by the Gnostic Christians, notably in the Gospel according to Thomas, among others in verse 3 and 70. It is integrated into Buddhism with a greater emphasis on the transcendence of the self. Kabbalists also consider it of great importance. Lastly, several writers, philosophers, and mystics of Islam identify it as a central notion of their teachings, some even attributing different versions to the Prophet himself. The adage generally attributed to Socrates has also gone through the ages. So many modern and contemporary thinkers mention its importance that listing them would be futile. We even see the mention temet noske, one of the Latin versions of the phrase appearing over the door to the oracle's kitchen in the film The Matrix, 1999. Mentions of know thyself are ubiquitous in space and in time suggesting that the maxim stands at the very heart of the mystical path, regardless of whether the quest is carried out through a specific tradition or not. For this reason, and in a way, this entire book deals with this quest for self-knowledge, and thus aims to suggest ways to embark on this path. It is in the heart of the mystic, in your heart, that the doorway to enlightenment resides. No other door leads to it but know that behind it thousands of other doors are waiting to be opened and made accessible to your luminous presence. Chapter 6 The Meaning of Self-Knowledge Of course there is no true consensus on the ultimate goal of a task with forms as varied than that of discovering oneself, especially since, it goes without saying, each person is likely to observe in himself something entirely different than what his neighbor might see in himself revealed. I therefore am not claiming the ability to explain the objective or the meaning of self-knowledge, and neither should I do so. Elucidating this mystery is entirely up to you. But then I could share with you what knowing oneself means to me. However, without your personal experience, it wouldn't be much more than an entertaining story, or worse. 
yet another opportunity to hinder your own research by attempting, intentionally or not, to satisfy yourself with my experience, pretending my answers are yours. Instead, I invite you to consider the matter from a broader perspective and see the ramifications of what this knowledge entails, globally and personally. Commonly accepted moral precepts linked to our materialistic beliefs at times give us the illusion of knowing who we are, which marks the adage, know thyself, with a seal of disuse in the minds of modern humans. Note that in this book, the definition of materialism is that of the belief that anything not made of physical matter, therefore measurable and quantifiable, is illusory and negligible. A synonym would be physicalism, to be distinguished from the term consumerism. After all, who we are on the surface is quite obvious, isn't it? We know what our favorite TV shows are, our tastes for food, clothes, music, what makes us laugh or irritates us, etc. We also know what political ideologies we adhere to, such as those that disgust us, what words and behaviors are acceptable, which also allows us to separate the good guys from the bad ones, how practical it is to identify oneself as one of the nice ones and thus comply accordingly to the right precepts. We think we perceive the nature of our dreams, our aspirations, regardless of whether or not we manage to achieve them. We are also proud to know our body, sometimes even more so after having received the opinion of a health professional about it. Where this way of knowing ourselves becomes problematic is that it is generally entirely dependent and relative to what is outside of us. These terms also depend, to a large extent, on the state of the economic system, which, as we know, fluctuates according to the financial interests of a handful of individuals. Indeed, who are we if no one creates the TV shows, if our favorite food is no longer produced, if we can no longer dress in a way that represents who we are or our place in society? Who are we if the craft we have spent so many years perfecting becomes obsolete overnight? And what about our dreams if the structures on which they depend collapse, or worse? if the circumstances no longer allows us even to contribute to their realization. Who would we be, for example, in the most total isolation? So beyond what we identify with that is external to us, knowing who we are implies something other than what we can verbalize about ourselves. More than what we can put in words, although we can describe its appearance, limits, and strengths, are we only our material body? Is it enough to encompass the quintessence of a human being? to be able to enumerate his physical prowess or the ailments that afflict him? What if, perhaps after years of therapy or journaling, we know most of our own history, exploits, and traumas? Is that enough to divine us, definitely? Or again, is a person summed up by what he knows or not how to do, or even what he is able to do? After all, most are well-trained to believe that people are reduced to their abilities, the aim of education being, or so it seems, mostly finding out what your career will be and how you can be useful to society. As proof, directly after stating our name, we generally mention our job to present ourselves. Have you adopted this belief for yourself? Is your essence limited to your skills, abilities, or formal education? The inverse question is also important to ask, because it expresses the same belief. Have you come to believe that you are nothing more than the sum of your inabilities? What do you consider to be your shortcomings? In short, are you nothing more than the sum total of your experiences and occupations? Maybe you're one of those who has already undertaken what is commonly called a spiritual process, 
and who will quickly answer all these questions in a uniform way. No, all of this is not me. I'm not a physical being having a spiritual experience. I'm a soul having a bodily experience, or something to that effect. Which brings me to this next set of questions. Are you truly sure you are not these things? Do your decisions and actions concretely reflect this claim? Do you believe that you are essentially just a vaporous cluster of psychic energies, floating in an ocean of infinite potential? If a car hits you, are you honestly able to claim that the car, like the physical pain from your shattered bones, are mere illusions? Aren't you salivating at the thought of your favorite dish? Aren't you irritated by uncomfortable clothes? Disgusted by what you think is a bad smell? Enchanted by your favorite music? Then when confronted with the idea of war, or of environmental, moral, and economic disasters, of loving smiles and of peace on earth, witness to a magical landscape, do you truly remain uninfluenced, stoically holding this idea that everything is illusion? And if so, what's left of your humanity? In other words, if you truly deny your body, your emotions, your psychology, or your ego for that matter, as the veil of Maya, who are you concretely? Do your actions, words, and decisions really reflect this belief? Note, because we are still at the beginning of the book, I would point out that without really harshly asking you all these questions, being particularly suspicious if you can answer them automatically, this book and its readings will not be of very much use to you. I cannot emphasize enough the importance of this point, as well as the fact that there are objectively no right or wrong answers to these questions. The ultimate question to ask as to the meaning of self-knowledge would then perhaps be the following. Are humans defined by the sum of their beliefs? In a way, we are approaching something more substantial by raising this point, as most of the time it is what we believe in that drives us in this world. Our beliefs, whether conscious or not, constantly influence our decisions in life, from the simplest to the most consequential. We recycle because we believe we are destroying the earth. We cry when a person we find wonderful refuses our affection. We hate those who we believe threaten our rights and freedoms. Those we believe unfair and judgmental, or simply who we believe to be different. We buy, consume, vote, work, study, we marry or not, procreate or not, according to our innumerable beliefs. And when faced with the impossibility to act according to them, we anesthetize ourselves, we get depressed, we suffer and agonize. Essentially, what we believe dictates what we create as well as what we destroy. Is it then sufficient to know what our beliefs are, to know who we are? Is a human then nothing more than the sum of his beliefs if they dictate all of his emotions, thoughts, and actions? Please do not take this question lightly. What remains of the individual aside from his meat envelope, his emotions, thoughts, and actions? Are beliefs the only true substance of being? Indeed, the placebo and nocebo effects demonstrate that even our physiological reality is influenced in large part by our beliefs. It seems like absolutely everything is somehow driven by what we accept or reject. But then a new problem arises. How many times our beliefs have turned out to be inaccurate, incomplete, or unfounded? How many times have we caused harm believing we are doing the right thing? How many atrocities still need to be committed in the name of our beliefs, whether moral, political, or religious? And if it is impossible for us to know absolutely, preemptorily, whether a belief is right and indeed rooted in truth, is it better not to believe in anything, not even in love, nor even beauty, 
Without beliefs, why even get out of bed, feed, or dress? As writer and philosopher Albert Camus said, Should I kill myself or drink a cup of coffee? Wait a second. This is madness. You mean to tell me that even the popular belief that the sentence was written by Camus is wrong? He actually never wrote these words? It's so confusing. If nothing is ultimately true, everything is illusion and covered by the veil of Maya. Who am I? What am I? Stop. Let's quickly look at all this in a broader way before sinking into nihilism, certainly one of the most formidable traps of the mystical path. Come on, take that rope off from around your neck and step down from that stool. Breathe. Everything is fine. Let's recap calmly. If we are defined neither by our tastes, our appearance, our opinions, our job, or our financial situation, nor by our behaviors, our material body, our aptitudes, or our limits, and ultimately nor by our beliefs, what is left of ourselves? If it's not enough to be able to list all these details of our person to claim to know who we are, what does it mean to know ourselves? Of course, many will be satisfied with these different parameters in order to define their person, as well as their personhood. It's surely the case even for most people. Actually, if you do belong to this majority, this chapter must seem to you very strange, absurd, or downright stupid, maybe even dangerous. But for you, who are truly fascinated or even distraught before the mystery of being, know that I am not insensitive to your curiosity, nor to your despair. Nevertheless, I reiterate that it is up to you to resolve this enigma, by and for yourself. We'll talk more about what there is to know a little later, but in the meantime, here are some more things to consider. If it seems insufficient to equate individuals to their beliefs, physicality or air, their passion for Thai cuisine, it may be because we are actually looking for something, say, immutable. And if all the elements considered until now are subject to change, some even very frequently, they nevertheless gravitate around a central core, which itself remains constant. Constant and ineffable, indescribable, revealing why I'm cloaking your ears with the notion that you have to experience this core for yourself. Would knowing oneself then be reduced to the lived experience of the central core of the sacred point? If so, many of you may feel discouraged. Some will feel helpless facing this task, especially if they now believe, thanks to the preceding paragraphs, that they are nothing of what they thought they were, their landmarks now uncertain. After all, what hope do we have of really knowing ourselves, from this point of transcendence, when so little or nothing in our so-called modern societies really pushes us to give it importance? Hmm, right? Here's a little something to maybe perk you up. The good news is that chances are that, maybe even inadvertently, you have already made the experience of the sacred center. It is also likely that this is the very reason that prompted you to open this book in the first place, because this type of experience often leaves us with the impression that life is about more than we can measure and perceive through our five senses. So here is one of my beliefs, which of course may well change eventually, but which so far seems to be confirmed more and more solidly over time and experience. Throughout this quest for self, for greater truth, we are assisted by a primal life drive, the very same one that makes trees grow and rivers flow. You are therefore not alone in feeling this impetus, and it is not illusory. This is what to be alive, to grow and to evolve consists of. The whole universe not only pushes you to it, but assists you in it. 
not because the universe is nice, but because your quest is synonymous with life. Yes, life with a capital L, which includes deaths and births of all variants. I am convinced that most of you have, or at one time or another, tasted the essence of this life. Although you will need some distance to truly realize it, know that this experience is not reserved for hermits, geniuses, or anyone with exceptional skills developed with effort or naturally present. The universe, by its very nature, supports the search for your deepest identity, and this at all times and whoever you are. Reassured by this support, let us end with a hypothesis leading to a possible answer to the question initially posed at the beginning of this chapter. It would be futile to take inventory of our fluctuating particularities, to scrutinize them and define ourselves by their details, thus hoping that reality becomes static, perfectly molded to what we believe we are and desire. However, the simple fact of observing, of witnessing the movement of our characteristics will possibly allow a more accurate understanding and feeling of the true identity of the adept. Our particularities, although not intrinsically linked to our deepest nature, form what manifests us in the world. Since they come from our beliefs, simply questioning them may represent the basis of the very act of knowing oneself. In other words, Revealing oneself does not consist in accumulating data or even developing certain capacities. The machine cannot know the machine. Discovering oneself would then consist rather in the adoption of a committed and active general attitude, a kind of vigilance, of presence to what vibrates in oneself as being the truth. To know oneself would actually mean to recognize oneself again and again in order to subsequently actualize oneself through our actions, our words, and the formation of our beliefs. Thus, he who knows himself, rather than being stone-faced, fixed, and defined by its smallest details, possesses above all the power to reinvent himself, adapting symbiotically to what the pulse of life presents to him from moment to moment. Chapter 7 why would it be significant? First of all, I should specify and remind that I do not pretend to know what truly is needed by this world. Having said that, as life expresses itself through each of us, I'll allow myself to mention what encourages me to perceive the mystical quest as being of primary importance, although it is only a series of opinions expressed from my direct point of view. Navigating the Chaos of a Changing World these psycho-philosophico-spiritual questions and perspectives may seem boring, or even possibly terrifying, to many humans on this planet, at least for those whose living conditions still allow them to dream and be entertained through leisure, relationships, and or work. It seems easier to rely on half-truths and to convince oneself of their solidity, to obtain a semblance of control over circumstances rather than to develop the objectivity necessary to perceive the deepest structures of our being. However, we are all more or less currently confronted with the terrible, or exciting, idea that the ground is visibly crumbling under our feet. I would not say that our world is coming to an end, although it is undeniably changing. These are not paranoid, pessimistic, or apocalyptic delusions. The wind is turning. Our present conventional systems, like the alternatives proposed by what some consider to be the elite, cannot support everyone's dreams and desires if they solely depend on money getting exchanged and on the earth being plundered. It is therefore imperative to review the basis and implications of our dreaming, as well as the very mechanisms pushing us to set goals and objectives for ourselves, 
so that they are in deep agreement with the life force that wishes to express itself through us. These great upheavals that we are going through are also, and above all, a sign that the foundations of our societies are relaxed, malleable, thereby creating a perfect opportunity to influence them towards greater harmony. However, the first step is still, you guessed it, knowing yourself. In general, true self-knowledge will directly connect the individual to his environment. Observing oneself implies sooner or later to understand the interdependencies that connect us at all levels, thus naturally influencing the character of our sociological and ecological impacts. In turn, this newly revealed connection will push the adept to tend towards a certain internal as well as external instinctive balance. Indeed, becoming aware of these links of interdependence reveals a notion that may seem quite paradoxical. Knowledge of oneself entails knowledge of one's environment. Through this type of connection, it is possible to find a certain individual stability, itself felt viscerally, based on a clear personal vision and lived experiences, rather than on the statements of institutional entities or on popular gossip. In short, knowing yourself allows the composure necessary for a balanced relationship both with yourself and with your environment, even in times of great upheaval. Unwavering in the Face of the Information Tsunami We have already seen the preponderant role played by beliefs on the entire life of an individual. It is therefore not difficult to imagine the magnitude of the impact that information can have on his priorities and decisions. Consider this. If our beliefs dictate our lives, information dictates our beliefs. Doesn't it then become essential to know who is dictating the information and why? I can already hear half of you calling me a conspiracy theorist, and the other half nodding vigorously. But remember this chapter deals with self-knowledge, not prejudice against the beliefs of others or the pretense of knowing their intentions, neither mine or any purveyors of information's. Ultimately, I suggest that for the majority of the information we receive, it is almost impossible to verify its accuracy and veracity. After all, we do live in an era called postmodern, characterized in particular by the questioning and sometimes even the rejection of history, traditions, and ideologies, of information from its access, its gargantuan amount to the point of being drowned in it, whether it's true or not, post-truth. Named, among other things, according to the notion that the media and politicians, ignoring the truth and the facts, only target various emotional impacts useful to their personal, ideological, or financial interests. Everything needed to evoke or invoke confusion, right? But let's get back to what we have actual power over, that is, our own beliefs. As I was suggesting earlier, observing them rigorously is an integral part of revealing our own true nature. Thus, it can be liberating to contemplate not the veracity of the information received, but even more, our relationship to it. What this information, these ideas, bring to life within us, I know it's a lot less intoxicating than the dopamine generated by the ultra-addictive feedback loops generated by social media, and choosing truth over entertainment isn't always the most enticing option. In the present day, this choice, this commitment to oneself, must be reiterated several times a day, every hour by anyone wishing to free their mind from this artificial and hypnotic climate of conflict. At least for anyone who chooses to consume large amounts of information, while remaining in touch with one's environment can be a valuable tool for observing our reactions and beliefs, being constantly immersed in stories, data, and ideologies 
represents an additional challenge for anyone wishing to escape the societal noise in order to truly see oneself. Sooner or later in the process of self-knowledge, we will face our own biases, indicating that everyone around us is influenced by theirs. Through knowing our personal history and having revisited our traumas, while developing a position of witness to our own life, we can begin to extrapolate once again based on our direct experience on the functioning of the human psyche. In simpler terms, by observing how and why beliefs are born within ourselves, we can consequently recognize the same mechanisms and actions in others. Then, as the propensity for self-knowledge is still far from widespread, even among the most influential public figures, it becomes obvious that almost all the conflicts of this world result from this lack of perspective. The pattern is omnipresent. A news story comes out, we are shocked, we conform, or we revolt. We solidify a belief and then we act upon it, repeat the cycle over and over and over again. On the other hand, the awakened adept remains somewhat stable in the agitation, empowered by the mastery of his emotions and his discernment. By knowing that all information transmitted is based on a multitude of intentions and beliefs, he manages to react to it with integrity, or sometimes not even react to it at all. For you see, adopting this attitude of self-observation also reveals to us the challenge of discerning what we have power over, as well as what we can't truly change. Where we should intervene, what is best to stay away from, and what we want to protect. In short, self-knowledge helps us distinguish what we have the power to change and what is wiser to adapt to. Another skill can also be developed thanks to the realization, deeper this time, of who we are. Through the transcendence of his physical nature, the mystic manages, when it suits him, to perceive the world with significant distance. By landing outside of space-time, one can become a spectator of events, worldly or personal as a whole, and to observe them as one would for waves on a shore. The burrow of a hare family is destroyed to create a paved road, which itself now lies beneath a gigantic coral reef. A war is declared in the name of peace, then ends rich in lessons for the next generation, which will live in a certain harmony, a harmony which will be preserved for a few decades, later at the cost of innumerable injustices. Burnt forests become lush, then icy deserts, and gloriously green again, thus dance chaos and order eternally. It reminds me of a poem composed by one of my favorite characters in the Zen tradition, the monk Ryokan, after he himself had been beaten with a stick. People who beat and people beaten, there is no difference like a dewdrop or like a flash of lightning, so must you consider them. It is thus possible to take this type of look at the information we receive as well as the emotions and beliefs they arouse, allowing us to review what they really consider important. This prospect and its likely appeasing effects still require a temporary detachment from our emotions, as well as the ability to remove oneself from the equation, or even the ability not to include oneself egoically in the observed situation. Although adopting this point of view in a permanent way might not be desirable, it can act as an effective antidote to the popular melodramas to which we are consciously or not attached. Freed from this emotional storm, we can distinguish between believing and knowing, between living in response to a constant dynamic of submission slash opposition and living according to what deeply animates us. Understand that I am not here inciting anyone to withdraw from society in the hope of remaining constantly in the spectator state. 
My intention for this section remains to demonstrate what makes self-knowledge so important. So I rather suggest that anyone who really and actively knows himself becomes, through his ability to look back on his own beliefs and his discernment, a stabilizing pillar for himself, for his direct surroundings, and for the society in which he participates. A Crisis of Deep and Heartfelt Meaning you may have heard, at least in echoes, of the famous scientific experiment conducted on rats to determine the addictiveness of certain drugs such as heroin, morphine, and cocaine. In summary, a rat is placed in a cage with two bottles of water, one of which contains a certain amount of opioid. The rat tastes both and ends up choosing only the latter to the point of abusing it and subsequently dying. Conclusion, the drug induced in the water of the second bottle is very addictive. Simple and obvious, right? Lock a rat in a cage without anything remotely fun, nothing permitting physical exercise, deprive it of the presence of other rats to socialize and more specifically rats of the opposite sex, and offer it heroin. Big surprise. The rat desires nothing more than to numb the pain of its terrible reality. This is a fine example of the simplism inherent to the reductionist and materialist paradigm that seems to prevail today. Fortunately, a Canadian psychologist named Bruce K. Alexander responded to the experiment with a second one, shall we say, conducted in a more natural way. In the late 70s, he repeated the famous experiment but replaced the austere little cages with what he called rat parks. In these pens, covering 200 times the space of a standard size cage, 16 to 20 rats of both sexes lived with food, toys, and training wheels within the best conditions for mating. As for the supplying of water, same principle as in the original experiment, i.e. a bottle of ordinary tap water and another of slightly sweetened water containing morphine. The results were, however, quite different from those of the experiment previously mentioned. If almost all the rats of the first experiment died of overdose, those from Professor Alexander's mostly ignored the second bottle, although some sometimes used it without negatively affecting their physical health. In that context, they weren't simply surviving, but that actually they even were having quite a lot of fun. Personally, what surprises me in all this is the very fact that anyone would be surprised by the results, sometimes going as far as calling their validity into question. We are so well conditioned to believe that the causes of addiction are mostly chemical in nature, therefore physical and material, that we rarely instinctively attribute the self-destructive behavior of the isolated rats to their terrible living conditions. Addictions of all types certainly do have a biochemical dimension, but it seems that it is very far from being their main cause, in rats as well as in humans. If the rat parks experiment demonstrates anything, it is how essential it is to study what leads to this type of self-destructive behavior. Without needing to rely on scientific research, I feel safe to assume that by transposing the living conditions of the rats of the first experiment to humans, we would, at very least, see the subjects afflicted by serious cases of depression. Certainly, this would result in strong addiction tendencies. Having said that, we can easily observe the addiction of people to technology, alcohol, and drugs, and as it turns out, depression does afflict our societies to a point where it can easily be considered as an epidemic. We are thus entitled to raise the following worrying question. Are we actually living more and more like the caged, isolated rats of the first experiment? There are hundreds, if not thousands, of books dedicated to the subjects of addictions and depression, 
and it is obvious that many considered experts in these matters could speak about them in much more detail than I do. I will therefore rely strictly on my personal experience of these subjects, more specifically that of depression, to link these calamities to the ignorance of what seeks to live within us. Without being an expert myself, I know very well that many of them would share my opinion that these crises of depression and addictions are caused by a lack of deep and felt meaning in our existence. To this notion, I would add an argument in favor of the subject that interests us in this chapter, namely for self-knowledge, because it is through it that one can ascertain what is most significant to oneself, which fills one with experience of truly being alive. This deeply felt meaning being a need as an essential as those of food and shelter, which fulfillment protects from the scourges mentioned earlier, is generally perceived instinctually. However, the sub-needs related to deep meaning are usually camouflaged, once again by a host of adopted and maintained beliefs, originating from any sources except that of our own heart. This is why the adept of self-observation, introspective, inquires about these thoughts and ideas that inhabit him to validate them or not in himself, according to a certain resonance principle. Note, more on this in the chapter section titled, Screaming into a Guitar. From this examination, only what makes sense to the adept persists and generates the right beliefs, allowing him to live with integrity. Often one finds oneself relieved by the occurrence of an automatic abandonment of what does not correspond to one's sense of meaning. Without myself lapsing into oversimplification, I'd say that by observing ourselves with parsimony and an unwavering honesty, we may well realize that our basic needs, our egoic needs, don't differ so much from those of our rodent brothers. In fact, they are so simple that it's quite easy to fill them artificially. We replace morphine water with a handheld computer that provides virtual social interactions with movies, TV shows, and video games that offer us the illusion of great quests and love stories, and with promises of greatness if we only agree to sacrifice everything to climb society's ladder. All these things act as anesthetics by themselves, desensitizing us to the pain resulting from not responding to what our hearts are truly asking us to manifest. Don't get me wrong. These needs are real. This is why, for example, the influence of social media is so effective, so powerful. These innate needs represent the expression of the life force within us and are generally related to what has deep meaning for us. That said, to free ourselves from technological and ideological panaceas as well as their facticity, it is necessary to observe the nature of their hold on ourselves. These parasitic mechanisms become part of our psyche and usurp our vital energy at its source to preserve us in a state of dependence. Very often, simply watching these systems operate within ourselves is enough to at least initiate their dismantling. In fact, since they act fundamentally on our beliefs, it is surprising that their power is as artificial as the reality in which they mean to keep us. It reminds me of the story of the Wizard of Oz, a great Gnostic fable if ever there was one. Although the quest is sometimes long to get to the heart of oneself, once there all that remains is to draw the curtain to see the machine in action, and the magician instantly loses all of his artificial powers. So getting out of addiction, to stop depending on the hand that adds morphine to our water, is a direct result of self-knowledge. If we one day wish to leave our austere cages, who knows, perhaps for idyllic the human park that essentially is the earth itself, 
we must see a growing number of humans having engraved the adage Noske te ipsum deeply into their minds. Conclusion In summary, self-knowledge would therefore be important to develop stability and inner bearings in a world in full revolution, refine our sense of discernment to deal with the torrent of information that constantly floods us, discover in oneself a deep meaning to one's own life in order to make it the only motivation for our choices and actions. It goes without saying that the notion of importance is highly subjective, and therefore what you consider to be essential may differ from my little list. So personally, what would you add to it? Or what items on this list do you see as incidental, secondary? Let me make a prediction here. No matter how you alter this list, and no matter your point of view of life itself, very few would question the importance of knowing oneself, regardless of our agreement on what self-knowledge entails. I therefore believe that, whether we like it or not, this propensity for self-revelation will always be alive in us, whether on the surface or in our depths. In truth, as long as there are humans alive, and even if self-knowledge were kept restricted by an infinity of bites in service of entertainment, the light of knowledge will ever persist. The true essence of the human entity is made of eternity, and although this essence can be occulted, it remains nonetheless indestructible. Chapter 8 Is Self-Knowledge Selfish? We are faced here with what is certainly one of the greatest paradoxes, at least apparently, opposing the adept's personal quest to the reality of other people. After all, by definition, observing oneself is synonymous with self-centeredness, isn't it? Nevertheless, we often discover the opposite effect among its adepts, that of a greater openness to their entourage. Note also that in the chapter called Why Would It Be Important?, I didn't really mention any reason having strictly personal impacts for the adept, even if it goes without saying that he himself will taste the fruits of his labor. After all, self-discovery also potentially reveals many connections of all kinds with the people and things of the world. For many, revealing these connections will expand the field of their considerations, and they will see their values tend gradually towards more altruism without denying their own needs. This process often happens naturally, as it simply becomes obvious, for those who know how to observe themselves in relation to their environment, that the well-being of all depends on the well-being of all. Be aware, however, that this path of self-knowledge does not guarantee, believe it or not, that a person who adopts it will act with more wisdom, compassion, and humility, nor that they will be systematically capable of greater empathy. At times, the adept must first go through a period during which he will indeed be centered on himself, sometimes by mistake, because this path is one of trial and error, sometimes by need. In rare but absolutely real cases, someone might even consciously take a path of self-gratification, making egocentrism the very essence of his life path, trying for one reason or another to cut the ties of interdependence with his direct and distant surroundings sometimes while abusing and manipulating them. The path of self-knowledge has indeed different stages that will impact the follower in several ways. I don't think it's necessary to list these steps, but one of them seems common enough for me to point out its existence. Psychologist and author Marshall Rosenberg, in his book Words Are Windows, or Their Walls, describes this phase as the adopting of a behavior he attributes to an obnoxious stage. 
the second of three in the process of emotional liberation. According to Rosenberg, this stage, which is characterized by anger, as well as the refusal to endorse the feelings of others, frequently results in the use of expressions such as, it's your problem. I believe that this is indeed one of the probable and, we hope, temporary consequences of the process of self-knowledge. When observing the source of our own behaviors, emotions, and traumas, we can stumble upon certain dark memories. For example, one of the situations, sometimes very numerous or extending over very long periods, where we feel that we have been taken advantage of or even during which we have felt obligated to deny our nature in order to protect ourselves or someone else. Following such realizations, we might feel like victims of people's actions or of circumstances. And in response, we might try to restore a certain balance by putting ourselves before everything and everyone else, thus becoming indifferent to the reality of others. In fact, we are currently observing a popular trend of self-care, maybe in some cases an outgrowth of the persisting New Age movement, which is helping to popularize the notion of respecting our personal needs. Evidently, being aware of those needs is generally considered a good thing. However, as we well know, there are always two sides to a coin. Discovering our needs often requires digging through dark memories mentioned earlier, revealing the ways in which they have been violated, and thus stirring up anger against all those who apparently try to step between us and our own well-being. It is therefore not surprising to see appear terms like toxic people, a horrible label bestowed often heedlessly by people who have not yet fully developed the ability to take responsibility for their gestures and emotions, nor any true notion of empathy. All of this may seem unfortunate, but it isn't necessarily so. In some cases, a person's entry into their obnoxious stage can be welcome news. Because if some tend to easily impose themselves on others, others experience enormous difficulties in asserting themselves. For the latter, this stage can be an essential passage in order to manifest what is alive within them. Breaking their shell often requires a good dose of warrior energy, and the echo of their cries can ring out for a certain period, a period that everyone will hope to be short. Because although freed from their chains, a person in an obnoxious phase remains no less obnoxious. Either way, whether the adepts have to go through this period or not, he will sooner or later discover the responsibility that comes with self-knowledge. This is an example of a situation where an individual in search of a personal exploration can behave in an egocentric way, inadvertently or unconsciously. Another example would be that of an adept obsessed with his quest to the point of neglecting his various relationships and possibly even cutting himself off from them. However, appearances are often deceiving, and the last example does not automatically reveal the motivations leading someone to isolate themselves from their community, family, or even society. In a way, because who says paradox often implies dilemma, meeting our own needs often makes us more available to meet those of others. But situations constantly arise where sacrifice is called for. Then rises the eternal question to sacrifice our own needs or those of our loved ones. Thus, the adept will frequently be called upon to decide, and the solution is rarely obvious. Therefore, the adept will sometimes feel inclined to isolate himself. Other times, he will have to make decisions that seem absurd or selfish to anyone not invested in a similar mystical quest. He will see his behavior and his language change while his field of consciousness expands, causing the incomprehension of certain, and therefore, 
the adept will have to choose between integrity and familiarity. In other words, to choose oneself or to choose others, selfishness or altruism. And as the principle of interdependence is revealed, the more we observe that the well-being of those around us depends on ours and vice versa, the more these kinds of decisions can be heartbreaking. Over time, if he remains vigilant in the face of the pitfalls inherent to his quest, allowing the expression of life can become the ultimate objective of the awakened adept, he will thus see the important hierarchical distinctions between his needs and those of others disappear. Decisions will be made more naturally and easily, his spontaneity triggering from others all kinds of qualifiers, from egocentric narcissist to devoted servant of the good. Indeed, even the most enlightened of the enlightened will never succeed in pleasing everyone. So let's come back to the first question. Is this quest for self-knowledge selfish? Surely now you understand how complex it is to answer. On the one hand, focusing on oneself can make one hope that everything and everyone, sometimes even the universe, will bend to his personal desires. On the other hand, the apparent selfishness of an individual, to some extent, may incidentally serve the greater good of his community. So many nuances and no binary answer to this question, but I suggest the following synthesis all the same. Affirming this path as essentially selfish would be wrong but it would be irresponsible of me to absolve its followers of all responsibilities. Vigilance is always in order, and even the enlightened mystic is liable to have all his spiritual work usurped by his own ego. Egocentrism, which implies that the individual is centered only on himself and therefore blind or indifferent to what is alive in others, is a bug rather than a property of the process of self-knowledge. Selfishness can sometimes prove necessary, at least in a lighter form, when the follower feels the need to restore his internal balance. At all times, his behavior can be perceived as being motivated by selfishness or egocentrism without it necessarily being so. Okay, so that synthesis might have been shorter, but not that much clearer, was it? Well, I believe that's fine for the following reason. At no time should the adept, whether a novice or well on the way, stop questioning the source of his motivations. This doubt, in a way, must always remain in his mind. Am I acting for the expression of life or for my sole benefit? As from moment to moment, even within a few seconds, the answer to this question can change. Know this. Self-knowledge is a power that comes with responsibility. The adept must therefore know himself not only in the past, but also through each of his gestures in the present. As if that weren't already complex enough, I leave you with this enigma. Is self-sacrifice, the denying of one's own needs for those of others, strictly a virtue or possibly a form of selfishness? And if the shortcomings generated by this attitude push the adept to deny himself, perhaps to the point of self-destruction, causing at the same time worries to those around him, or if it is motivated by an insatiable thirst to please or to be validated. Once again, appearances can be quite deceiving. Chapter 9. How Would One Proceed? As you can now imagine, there is many ways of getting to know oneself as there are individuals. What is more, the adept will see his range of methods, processes, or rituals grow and become more refined over the course of his experiences. Your personality, being an integral part of your vehicle of incarnation, 
your rights of self-observation will have to be perfectly adapted to it to be effective. Which raises the following problem. If revealing our authentic persona, free from corruption and false beliefs, is required to find these tools of self-revelation, how should we proceed to reveal our authentic persona, free from corruption and false beliefs? Aren't these the same tools and methods? Well, yes. To really know oneself is to perceive oneself in one's totality, including our personality. So there is no more beginning than end to this quest. Surely it will, in fact, have multiple starts and multiple conclusions. I can already see the confused looks wondering, but then, what do I start with? The most important thing, maybe even the only thing that truly matters, is to be really, viscerally dedicated to the quest. Its beginning is not marked in time by a single event. It is about renewing our personal oath to the truth every moment, because in a way there is nothing more to do than strive for a form of radical honesty with yourself. The active wish or the intention to align oneself to perceive as much as possible with that which is true in itself suffices for the mystical path. Know also that absolutely everything you can experience is rich in lessons. From our most mundane physical experiences, our relationship and interactions, our psychological particularities, our thoughts and emotions, to the most transcendent spiritual experiences, all of these areas are also embodied sources of learning. They all represent, reflect, and contain different aspects of our being. Let's recap. The ways for humans to know themselves are almost infinite, and the adept will discover the most appropriate for him over time and through experience. There is no specific starting point to the beginning of this quest. The intention to be radically honest with oneself is enough to be on the path, and absolutely everything that one experiences can bring us knowledge. Well, that says it all and says nothing, you might say. But again, I allow myself to be satisfied with the vagueness left by the last paragraph. It is of major importance to remember that I have no answer for you that is superior to what you can experience for yourself. The same applies in searching for the best methods to be used for self-knowledge. Always the same refrain. No one can discover them for you. That said, I am aware that we sometimes need a bit of inspiration or suggestions for matters to explore. I would like to provide you with some of them. Some won't be defined in detail in this chapter as we will come back to them in depth later in the book. However, I suggest you consider this non-exhaustive list as if it were a restaurant menu. Some items will seem familiar, others totally new or even strange. Are you the type to always have the same dish, or rather, the kind that wants to try everything? Whatever the answer, are you absolutely certain that your choice is in tune with your deepest nature? Would you like a bit of novelty, or more stability? Okay, okay, okay. I'm done torturing you. Let's skip to the menu. A few avenues of exploration. Introspection. Until proven otherwise, introspection is the only item on the list that appears to me as essential to self-knowledge. Come to think of it, it is more of a catalyst than as a tool as such. Without introspection, all the knowledge contained in each of your experiences will remain buried. Without the presence it requires, everything you learn would remain static, without truly impacting on your everyday life. But for those bored at the mere thought of sitting still, scrutinizing their thoughts, rest assured. Contrary to popular belief, introspection is experienced in many ways. 
Certainly, there is one that will not only be more effective for you, but also more pleasant and natural. Although introspection can take a multitude of forms, the most common is undoubtedly journaling. This practice no longer has to prove itself. However, not only is it not for everyone, but it should be known that it has its limits. Being introspective, contrary to the generally accepted definition, doesn't always mean analyzing ourselves on a psychological level using our intellect. Introspection is, first of all, to inspect what is alive in oneself. And self is also a complex physical body with its five basic senses, a spirit, an irrational emotional body, and possibly more subtle bodies. The eye one observes is the egoic vehicle in its totality. However, remember that the most effective tools are those that correspond with most of our personality. Thus, introspection is not reserved for those who have desirous and able to write page after page in a diary. For some, looking within oneself is done first via the body physical by observing both well-being and tensions. For others, this exploration will mostly take place in the imaginal space of dreams and visions, their perception being of a symbolic nature. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.